This week on the show, we cover eight open source trends to keep an eye out for in 2024, system design for advanced beginners, uh, Soline repents 2024 plans and 2023 retrospective, upgrading from NetBSD 5.1 to 10.0 RC1 on a rather old machine, I would say. FreeBSD has a new C compiler, Oracle Developer Studio 12.6, the Control Alt Museum, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 542, Retro and Futuro, recorded on the 12th of January 2024. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow to find online backup for truly paranoid people. And if you want to support this show in one way or the other, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash bsdnow. And we thank you in advance for that. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome both to the new year, which is a couple days old by now, but it's our very first episode in the new year. Also our very first, well, almost very first episode in this kind of format, uh, meaning video coming back, or at least we're trying. And um, yeah, happy 2024 to all of you. We're We're using a new tool for production. And hopefully yeah. me it saying that is burn, all you and... will know about it. <laughs> Things will break. Uh, don't expect perfection at this point yet, but we're working out all the kinks and things that uh, show up during the episode, or if everything went smooth, even better. So uh, bear with us. Uh, we do, have think, an episode... do, you think, do you think the user interface will ever catch up, Benedict? Because it says 86% no. uploading. Do you think it's just going to sit there the whole time? Yeah, that's normal. It will, yeah, over time. Uh, Maybe if my internet was faster. <laughs> there's that, yeah. That's why I'm the main producer. What, what happens when my internet dies? Because <laughs> it does that a lot. And then you can rejoin and uh, it will try to catch up. I'm sure we'll get to try that. I'm sure we'll have that situation, but then we'll see what the software that we didn't pay money for uh, is worth. But but then wait, so we're recording video. Is anyone ever going to see this video? Because I might have moved the screwdrivers behind me. Yeah, apparently it's... A I see, see, like there's Benedict hiding the lead. Yeah. Patreon Patreon members might get video in the future. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. I'm, no I'm not going to promise anything. It's on JT. But at the moment, your video is kind of a, a pixel mishmash, so... But... My video is awful and I don't know why. Like, it's... It's not like it was a cheap webcam. It's just... A terrible webcam. It's, it says here a low data mode. Ah, okay then. Yeah, so that's just because my internet is terrible. saving as much that's as fine. possible. We want audio, uh, but, and that's the. But maybe it's feature. maybe it's only sending you, like it shouldn't be sending you the highest quality video and data it has. It should just be sending you like. Yeah, and the main part is recorded on their servers, and as long as they have the high video, high quality parts, then I don't care too much. Or, I like, know as long as it's in my client now and they'll get it later. All yeah, right, they will 95%. synchronize the rest that didn't catch up yet. I, I want to see if we just sit really, really still if it will. Yeah. If it, the compression will catch up and it'll be done. <laughs> yeah, no breathing. Anyway, no, we should I, do a podcast. Movement. Anyway, how are you, sir, in the new year? How did you I don't want to say pass over, but you know what I mean. How did you get did started? You, I'm not dead. <laughs> That's good to hear. Yeah, confirmation, Tom is not dead. Yeah, uh, yeah it's fine. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just... Yeah. I, I, I went to Germany and I got a really bad cold. Oh, and it wasn't COVID. that's bad. I mean, so the cold part. I was it... ill for like... Yeah, I was like ill for two weeks. It's not... Oh, completely? Not what I wanted. Uh, that's yeah. not good. Like, that's the time that? for resting and not getting uh, back to health again, even though... Some people catch cold in this time. I wanted to have like an arduous program of um, doing nothing, and instead I was too ill to do anything. Mm. I couldn't even enjoy doing nothing. Yeah, so part of that came true in, in, in a sense. No, like I, I didn't get to savor the nothing. Yeah, as much as it's possible. Just like normal nothing. Between sneezes yeah. and, you know, bed rest and stuff. Uh, I did a bit of fasting from the 22nd till the 29th, the seven days. And, um, 
This time, although I did that last year, or the year before as well, uh, but this time I took some extra electrolytes, which helped a lot with uh, headaches and stuff. And overall, it was fine. Lost six kilograms. I'm not sure if that is good or bad, uh, but I didn't mostly do it for uh, losing weight because if you've seen me I in did the, the flesh, exact opposite of fasting. A- exactly. Yeah, I should do the uh, <laughs> gelato runs uh, twice as much now. Uh, but without further ado, uh, the episode the you are listening on is full of stuff that happened uh, still a little bit from last year. Also, a couple of things fresh from this year. Headlines start with eight open source trends to keep an eye out for in 2024. And what better way to start the year with such an article from Clara Systems, of course. And they start with the landscape of open source software is rapidly evolving with 2024 poised to be an interesting year for advancements and transformations. This article puts together insights from our own engineering leads, practitioners, but also analysts in the industry, accordingly uh, referenced, uh, focusing on notable trends, especially in areas like OpenZFS and open source storage management. So they have here a report uh, by uh, Markets and Markets. Okay, that's a separate link. Uh, that the open source services market at two, uh, 21.7 billion in 2024 will reach 50 billion by 2026, a growth rate of 130%. Okay. And so what are some of the implications of this growth in 2024? Guess what? Elephant in the room, AI and machine learning integration in open source software. Who would have guessed? Uh, but it's true, it's there, and they say we'll start with the obvious and somewhat buzzwordy uh, one of last year, artificial intelligence, AI, and machine learning continue to be integral to open source software, enhancing coding efficiency and automating complex tasks. The integration of uh, AI and machine learning in open source software tools is not just a trend, but a transformation, offering at times either completely new capabilities or new ways to execute on problem solving and decision making. The integration of AI and machine learning into open source software is a significant trend, primarily driven by the need for more efficient and intelligent development processes. This integration also marks a shift in how open source software is developed and used, bringing some more for sophistication and advanced features to open source projects. The growing adoption of AI in open source uh, reflects a broader trend of technological advancements, making open source more powerful and versatile. So Gartner predicts that more than 80% of enterprises will have used some form of generative AI APIs and models and or generative AI enabled applications in production by 2026, compared to less than 5% earlier this year. And any number of these will run on open source environments. The second is the focus on security and ethical concerns. The focus on security and ethical concerns in open source software is intensifying, particularly with the integration of AI and machine learning technologies. So that ties into the first Uh, item. As open source increasingly incorporates AI, complex legal and ethical issues come to the fore. Questions around intellectual property rights and the legality of open source projects for training AI models are sparking a debate. You may have heard some of the already high-profile cases like the lawsuit against GitHub's Copilot AI tool highlighting these challenges. Uh, Uh, Simultaneously, the necessity of robust security measures is underscored by vulnerabilities in widely used open source software components, exemplified by the Log4j incident. Remember that one? Uh, This evolving landscape demands a concerted effort from the open source software community, developers, and legal experts to navigate these issues responsibly, ensuring that open source remains a secure and ethically sound, ethically sound. Uh, choice in a tech ecosystem. The ongoing discussions and initiatives in this space are crucial for the sustainable growth and credibility of open source software. And number three, that many of us will uh, probably look forward to, rising adoption of OpenZFS. OpenZFS, our favorite advanced file system and logical volume manager, is gaining traction for its robustness and efficiency in handling data with its unique features like copy and write cloning, continuous integrity checking, and automatic repair, OpenZFS is a standout in the realm of open source storage solutions. This trend highlights a growing recognition of the need for reliable and secure storage management systems. The expansion of OpenZFS in 2024 can be attributed to its robust features and the growing costs associated with proprietary storage licensing. As organizations face increased storage demands, the cost-effectiveness of OpenZFS becomes more appealing. OpenZFS offers advanced functionalities like high data integrity, scalability, and efficient data protection, 
which are essential for managing large volumes of data. Its open source nature allows for greater flexibility and adaptability, making it a preferred choice for organizations seeking to optimize storage management while avoiding the escalating licensing fees associated with proprietary solutions. So we have eight in total. Uh, let's look at number four. They have increased corporate support and sponsorship listed there. Uh, in recent years, either due to economic uncertainty and overall budget shrinking, we have witnessed a remarkable shift in corporate attitudes towards open source software. So it's not cost uh, 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 consideration here. Notably, tech giants like Facebook and Google initially reduced the open source office footprints, but we're now seeing a resurgence and expansion in this area. This change is fueled by a renewed recognition of the strategic value of open source initiatives. Number five, expansion of open source program offices or OSPOs. In parallel, there's an increasing trend of establishing open source program offices within companies. These cross-functional teams are responsible for strategizing and implementing open source policies and practices. OSPOs help companies manage the risks and maximize the benefits associated with open source software. The expansion of OSPOs, including roles like Chief Open Source Officer, wow, sounds great, signals a strategic shift in companies towards more structured and efficient engagement with open source software. This trend is a testament to the growing realization of open source value beyond more or mere technology, encompassing aspects of innovation, community engagement, and strategic advantage. Number six is diverse applications across industries. Open source software is no longer limited to tech companies. It's finding applications in various sectors, from education to government, indicating its versatility and adaptability to different operational needs. They have a bit more about that, so uh, be sure to check out the full article. Number seven is emphasis on sustainable open source software development. In 2024, there's a growing awareness in the open source software community about the need for sustainable development. This includes ensuring that open source maintainers who often work voluntarily receive fair compensation for their efforts. Addressing issues like maintainer burnout and fostering a diverse, inclusive environment are also crucial. And these initiatives aim to sustain the open source ecosystem's health and vitality, ensuring that it continues to innovate and provide high-quality, accessible software solutions for a wide range of users and industries. And number eight is open source software and education. Educational institutions are increasingly adopting open source software for teaching and research, leveraging its accessibility and adaptability for learning purposes. Open source software is growing its presence in education, and that is attributed to its adaptability, cost effectiveness, and the hands-on learning experience it offers. Educational institutions are increasingly embracing open source, like FreeBSD or OpenZFS, for their flexibility and community-driven innovation. And the last paragraph of that is, as we move into 2024, these trends underscore the dynamic nature of open source software, from OpenZFS's rise in storage management to the ethical dilemmas posed by AI. The OSS landscape is both challenging and exciting. With enhanced corporate support and a focus on security and sustainability, open source is set to play an even more crucial role or critical role in shaping the future of technology and beyond. Okay, next up we have a blog post. Hmm, there's a question. Next up, we have a post by Robert Heaton on their blog at robertheaton.com. Uh, they describe themselves as a software engineer slash one-track lover slash down a two-way line. I don't, I don't know what that means. Um, this is system design for advanced beginners. You've started yet another company with your good friend, Steve Stevington. It's an online marketplace where people can buy and sell things and where no one asks too many questions. It's basically a ripoff of Craigslist, but Craigslist, but with Steve's name instead of of Craig's. <laughs> You're going to be responsible for building the entire Steve list. Steve's Steve list. I think I know Steve list. You're going to be responsible for building the entire Steve's list technical platform, including all of his website, mobile apps, databases, and other infrastructure. You're excited, but also nervous. You figure out you can probably cobble together a small website since you've done that a few times before as part of your previous entertaining, if morally questionable, ex-escapades with the Stevester. But you have no idea how to even start building out all of the other infrastructure and tools that you assume lie behind large, successful online platforms. You're in desperate need of a detailed yet concise overview of how real companies do this. How do they store their data? How do their different applications talk to each other? How do they scale their systems to work for a million users? How do they keep them secure? How do they make sure nothing goes wrong? <clears throat> okay. Um, what, what are APIs, webhooks, client libraries, when you really get down to it? You send a quick WhatsApp to your good other good friend, Kate, Kate Berry, to see if she can help. You've worked together very effectively in the past, and she has decades of experience creating these types of systems at Silicon Valley's biggest and most controversial companies. 
She instantly accepts your job offer. You, you, you had only been ringing for some guidance and gossip, but nonetheless, instantly accept her acceptance. No point looking a gift horse in the mouth, even when you don't have money to pay her. Kate proposes that her first day be five weeks ago in order to help smooth over some accounting irregularities. She can come into the office sometime next week. You feel encouraged and threatened by her eagerness. Kate bounces into your offices in a 19th century literature section of the San Francisco Public Library. That, uh, that's actually my dream office. That'd be a great office. Uh, okay, let's do this, she shouts quietly. What have you got so far? How are all the systems set up? What's the plan? You lean back in your chair and close your laptop, which was not turned on because you left your charger at home. You steeple your fingers in a manner that you hope can be described as thoughtful. Let me flip the question around, Kate. What do you think the plan should be? Kate takes a deep breath and paints an extremely detailed vision of the Steve's List platform five years into the future and the infrastructure that will power it. Before we start, says Kate, I want to make it clear that I'm not saying that any of this is necessarily the right way to set up our infrastructure. If someone you trust more than me says something different, then you probably should do what they say. There are tools out there, each with different strengths and weaknesses, and many ways to build a technology company. The real honest reasons that we will make many of our technological choices will be, we chose X because Sarah knows a lot about it, and we chose Y on the spur of the moment when it didn't seem like a big decision and we never find the time to reevaluate. Nonetheless, let's fast forward five years into the future. Now Steve's List has two main consumer-facing products, the Steve's List website at WebApp. The Steve's List smartphone apps. These are the main ways in which users directly interact with the Steve's List platform. In addition, we also provide an API that allows programmers to build power tools on top of Steve's List platform that, for example, create hundreds of listings of items programmatically. To support this, we offer Steve's List API, Steve's List API client libraries that make it easy for programmers to write code that talks to our API. Here, I'll draw a diagram on the whiteboard. It's some boxes. Finally, we have many, many services running in the background that provide the data and power to these external facing applications. Uh, webhooks, user password authentication, SQL database, free text searching systems, internal tools, cron jobs, a pub sub system, big analytical system, and many more that we'll talk about another day. Let's go through each of these in turn. Let me know if anything isn't clear, if you have any questions, or if you think I've got something wrong. This is Kate, by the way, in this article by Robert, I'm talking to Steve. Before we start, what is a server really? Before we start, let's define some important terms. In fact, let's just define one. We're going to talk a lot about servers today, but what is a server when you really get down to it? For our purposes, a server is a computer that runs on a network and listens for communications from other computers. When it receives some data from another computer, it performs some, act some sort of action in response and usually sends back some data of its own. For example, a web server listens on a network for HTTP requests and sends back web pages and information in response. A database server listens for database queries and reads and writes data to the database that it's running. This brief description skips out entire degrees and careers of detail, and there are of course more precise and accurate ways to define the word server, but this should get us through until dinner time. I've had dinner. But what did you say? What's a network? Another good question for another day. Let's talk about the Steve's List platform. This is the main Steve's List product. It's just a normal web app, very similar to any website that you've built before, except much bigger. It's a modern single page app. The single and single page app refers to the fact that the user's browser almost never has to fully reload the page as the user clicks around the website. Instead, when the browser makes its first HTTP request to our servers, we send it back a basic skeleton HTML page and a big pile of JavaScript. This JavaScript code executes inside the browser and updates the view of the page in response to the user's actions. When the JavaScript wants to send or retrieve data from Steve's list, it sends an asynchronous JavaScript XML request, almost always called AJAX for short, I haven't heard Ajax for a long time, in the background to a URL. When our server responds, the JavaScript uses the response to update the browser's view accordingly. There's a big diagram here. I'm not reading you a diagram, but it's an ASCII art. I am a fan of ASCII art. RobertThetan.com is not a single page app. Whenever you click a link on the page, the browser has to reload the entire page. Twitter.com is a single page app. Whenever you click a link, the browser dynamically updates a small portion of the page without forcing a full refresh. SPAs are a lot of what to a lot of work to build to maintain, but they look good. Okay. We provide Steve's list smartphone apps for iOS and Android. They are conceptually very similar to our single page web app. Both are our smartphone and web apps make HTTP requests to our servers. Then our servers receive these requests, do some work and return a HTTP response. Finally, both our smartphone and web apps update their display in order to communicate with the user. Since our smartphone apps are performing the same operations as the web app, they can usually send their requests to the exact same URLs as the web app. 
The only extra work that we have to do is to develop the front ends of the apps themselves. Some frameworks even make it possible to write mobile apps using JavaScript. The Steve's List API, we allow users and third parties to write code that programmatically interacts with our platform. In the same way that people can use the Twitter API to write code that uh, reads, likes, and creates tweets. <laughs> Not anymore. We allow them to use the Steve's List API to search, buy, and list items. Programmers use our API by writing code that makes HTTP requests to our API endpoints. For example, in order to retrieve a list of all their listings, the programmer sends a HTTP GET request to api.stevelist.com slash v1 slash listings. We respond with the data they requested formatted as JSON. JSON stands for JavaScript Object Notation. JavaScript stands for JavaScript. Uh, but JSON is not specific to JavaScript and can be easily interpreted by any programming language. A JSON response to a request to retrieve all users' listings might look like this. I'm not reading JSON. Um, Better not. It could be a Patreon perk. Tom reads some JSON. Oh, yeah. That'd be really hard to get right. Um, <laughs> this structured response format is very easy for a program to parse, which means the code that made the request can trivially interpret and use the data from our API. Users identify or authenticate themselves to our API using an API key. This is, roughly speaking, the API equivalent of a password. It is a long, random string that we generate and display on a user's settings page. Users include their API key as a HTTP header with every HTTP request that they or their code makes to the API. When we receive an API request, we check to see whether the attached API key corresponds to a Steve's list user. If it does, then we perform the request on behalf of the user. If a programmer wants to, they can manually build HTTP requests to our API themselves using their language standard HTTP library. Uh, and there's a Python example. We've seen how Steve's List users can use our API to programmatically interact with their account. In addition, many users also want us to proactively tell them when something happens to their Steve's List profile. For example, suppose that somebody wanted to fully automate the process of selling items on Steve's List. Whenever a customer pays for an item using our new mostly secure Steve Pay system, we want to send the customer a thank you email and automatically instruct their warehouse to ship a stolen TV to the order address. Our seller could constantly and repeatedly query the Steve's List API asking, any new sales? Any new sales? However, this would be very inefficient and would put a lot of unnecessary load on our servers. Instead, we provide an industry standard system called webhooks. A webhook is a HTTP request that we send to our users whenever something interesting happens to their account. It contains all the data describing the event that just happened. For example, the item ID, the price, the buyer ID, the buyer address, and so on. Webhooks allow users to automatically perform response actions such as the aforementioned email and auto shipping. To use webhooks, the user tells us the URL to which they would like us to send their webhooks. For example, steveslistwebhooks.robertthetan.com. They set up a web server that URL and they will receive and action these webhook notifications. Webhooks come with two main complications, security and viability. Let's first talk about security. The endpoint to which the instructor tells us to send webhooks is accessible to anyone on the internet. Anyone who knows the URL can send a fake webhook. If our seller isn't careful, this could allow an attacker to trick them into, for example, sending the attacker free stuff. A seller's webhook URL should be difficult to find since the seller won't publicize its existence, but obscurity is not, obscurity is not the same as security. To allow our sellers to verify a webhook is really sent by a Steve's server, we cryptographically sign our webhook contents. Reliability. We also need to consider what happens when our webhooks go wrong and what guarantees we want to make to our users about them. If we try to send a webhook that but can't connect to the user's server, what should we do? What if we successfully connect to their server and send the webhook, but their server sends back an error? What if we send the webhook, but the server hangs for 20 seconds before disconnecting without telling us what happened? There are trade-offs involved here that require clear communication and a surprising amount of infrastructure to manage. We at Steve's List choose to guarantee that we will deliver webhooks at least once. That means that if a webhook fails to send, we will keep trying a large but not infinite number of times until it does. If we're not sure whether a webhook succeeded or failed, we will keep trying until we're sure that an attempt has succeeded. This might occasionally result in us sending the same webhook twice, but it's a seller's responsibility to have their code handle this gracefully instead of sending the same customer five stolen TVs instead of the one they just ordered. Uh, I don't know. I don't, this is a really, 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 really long article. It goes into a lot of it is all subtopics and clear. So I'm gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna go all the way to the bottom. I'm missing all stuff on databases because I don't. They're a, a bit further down. I don't like the idea of data integrity. I, I much prefer dropping packets on the floor. Yeah, yeah I'm nearly there. Okay, beat breath. It's dark outside and you're hungry. This is true. Is that pretty much it? You ask. Oh God, no. 
We could keep going forever, but this is a pretty good start. It's helpful to have a broad understanding of a wide range of topics, but no one needs to know the details about everything. I find that once you know some basics, you can keep picking up more basics and even a couple of details as you go along. You ask Kate if you ask if Kate could perhaps continue to elaborate on her five-year vision for Steve's list tomorrow. Absolutely, says Kate. We'll talk about more about what goes into a real large online platform, including security, server management, and big data. See you tomorrow at 7 a.m. <laughs> yeah, it's true. That's why we have such a diverse team of different uh, skills that all complement each other and tie into this whole big thing that uh, companies or, are running. Or what you could do is you could have one very, very tired and stressed person. Or that, that does everything. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's much more money efficient. That too. But if that person gets sick, then... Eh. Lower operating costs. Hey, it's, you know, you just bake in the risk. Oh, yeah. I forgot the economic side of things, not just uh, technology. <laughs> um, moving on into our news roundup this week. Uh, and we have from Celine her 2024 plans and 2023 retrospective. So there are some some changes there, uh, turns out. Uh, but not. let's not get ahead of ourselves. She starts with, hello. It happens that I occasionally write a blog post to give some news about my own project and lifestyle or life. This is such a blog post. So this is less technical, even though it covers a couple technical things. Uh, we will hear a bit more what she has been up to in 2023. So her projects in 2023 uh, she lists here in uh, the second paragraph, uh, 2023 was a special year for me. I've been terribly sick early January. Oh no. And this motivated me to change a lot of things in my life. I stuck to this idea the whole year and I still continue to lurk for changing things in my life. That's something for, uh, you know, New Year's resolutions, sticking to them. That's the real issue, not just making them. That's my personal take on that. Okay. So work. Uh, she writes, I left the company I was working for and started to work as a freelance DevSecOps slash DevOps. The word sysadmin would be the best job title for me, but people like buzzwords and nobody talk about nobody talks about system administrators anymore. Since the end of the year, I also work as a technical writer for a VPN provider that I consider ethical, and that it makes and that makes her think uh, that in the future she may have a career shift to being a technical writer only. So uh, yeah, she's doing already a good job here with these blog posts. Uh, then she lists the blog itself. Since 2023, I have a page on Patreon, uh, allowing my readers to support me financially in exchange for a few days of early access for most blog posts. This is an advantage to reward my supporters without being a loss for all the other readers. Patreon helps me a lot as it allows me to plan on a monthly income and spend more time on my blog or contributing to open source projects. I also added other payment options as some wanted to support me using more free, as in freedom, methods like LibraPay, Libra uh, BTC, which is the Bitcoin you may have heard, or XMR. That, I don't know what that stands for. But, okay, it's available. The blog also receives a few technical changes, uh, or received them, mostly in the HTML rendering, like captions on pictures or header numbering. I'm quite pleasant, or... or Pleased with the result right now and the use of uh, GEM text from Gemini, markup was a right choice a few years ago as it gives a simple structure and forcing clarity. Of course, it's bad if you need a complex layout. Uh, that's I think it's fine, especially when we are uh, covering it here on the show. The content finally got a proper license, CC by uh, 4.0. I'm an open source person. My own content was under no license. Shame for all this time. Okay, uh, then we have open source. Last year, I started using CubesOS as it's the best operating system for my needs. A blog post will cover this soon, okay? And I got involved into the community in, in testing the 4.2 release that got out a few weeks ago by now. I'm still contributing to open, so open source and OpenBSD in particular, but not as much as I want, simply because of a lack of hardware and a bit of time. But it is now solved after my deal with Nova Custom. I still maintain the packages, updating the build uh, or updates in the build cluster. Oh, great! In 2023, I entirely dropped NixOS, but I prefer to not write a blog post about it 
to avoid a flame war, but maybe I'll write one. In a few words, I didn't like the governance issues of the project. It seems company-driven to me, and from my point of view, it's harmful for the open source project. The technology is awesome, but the core team struggles to get somewhere. I'll investigate more GUICs, as I always enjoyed this project, and they proved there is a reliable and solid project able to maintain their pace over time. Oh, interesting. Then we have the OpenBSD website that she uh, puts out. It's my favorite pet project, even though it's a lot of work to publish a single issue. Yeah, I can imagine Tom, both Tom and I are working on the FreeBSD uh, journal. And even though we're just doing the chase the authors down and uh, writing articles. We don't even do home, the work. Yeah, there's other people behind the scenes that are <laughs> doing the whole uh, we finishing even, up. We don't even do the work and it's yeah, a lot of work. Yeah, I'm not, I don't want to demean <laughs> what we're doing. It's just uh, a lot of work that uh, we have a kind of a, an insight into. Um, people are the worst. <laughs> uh, she continues with working with Prahu for the special Halloween issue. was really fun as instead uh, of writing the content, I had to give some direction to keep the issue on rails for being a website issue, but being able to enjoy it like any other reader as I didn't make the content itself. Okay, that was 2023. Let's go to 2024 and projects he plans to do there. First is lifestyle. For no reasons, I decided to experiment vegetarian diet up to end of February. Uh, she writes, I still eat eggs, milk, butter, cheese, or rarely fish. I'm bad at cooking. I don't enjoy it much, but mostly because I have no idea what to cook. Okay. This forces me to learn about new food and recipes I was not aware of. Uh, okay. Before you starve. <laughs> Buying a recipe book is definitely a must for this. I never really enjoyed meat, and it's possible that I may keep the vegetarian diet for a longer time. Okay. Then open source. This is the year of the comeback on OpenBSD. I really enjoy contributing to it, helping the community and reviewing some ports I care of. Okay, good to hear. I also continue contributing to CubesOS. This niche operating system deserves some more contributors. Then the blog. I'll try to stick to a weekly blog post schedule. Of course, I also need to work in parallel and sometimes I'm just out of ideas. Yeah, that happens. We'll, we'll pick the best spots uh, on the blog. Otherwise, people can also... Uh, Look at dataswamp.org and, uh, you know, read the ones that uh, we didn't cover. Work. Let's see what 24 will bring for me. Okay, that is also a bit of, you know, unsure yet, but let's hope for the best. And last but not least, best wishes at the end. I'd like to thank all my readers. I regularly receive emails about your enjoyments or typo reports or suggestions to improve the content. This really drives me continuing uh, writing. Yeah, please do so. We'll be happy to cover more of your uh, posts and uh, especially when they're BSD related, of course, but also this one is nice to get uh, the year started. Thanks for, for sharing stuff about your life, Celine. It's always good to see people being honest. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that too. Their honest selves. Um, and I hope you have a good year and I hope it will give you a lot of money because I love reading your blog posts, which I mostly read through the show because somebody prepares a reading list for me. Okay, next up we have a blog post from Joel P. That's as much name as I could get. Upgrading NetBSD 5.1 to 10 underscore RC1. NetBSD 5.1 on a 1998 laptop. I still have my old 1998 Toshiba Satellite Pro 445 CDT with 81 megabytes. An odd number. Yep, 0.08 GB of RAM and the original one gigabyte hard drive. I still have a working 3Com PCM CIA NIC, but the FD adapter and the CD-ROM bay have long since died. It's running a 2010 build of NetBSD 5.1 i386. Generally pretty well. It's hard to get any package source working anymore, so it's a, it's been static, e.g. Python 2.6.6. <laughs> um, I have to use curl or links for anything HTTP related. I can run X11, I definitely do not have it attached directly to my network. I think that's a lie. I think that was a lie. Often during the holiday break time of year, I take out these old hardware devices for a spin. This time I tried to upgrade the old laptop from NetBSD 5.1 to 10 RC1. Without the FD or CD-ROM drives, I could not use a floppy or a CD to boot an installation image. The BIOS can't do Pixie or recognize a USB device to boot. Here are some notes to share on getting 10 RC1 and 9.3 to boot. NetBSD 10 RC1 90s hardware. The key takeaway is that NetBSD 10 does not run well on this old Intel 586 class 
at 132 megahertz device. Uh, it does run and I got it stable. I also gave NetBSD 9.3 a try with similar results. While I needed to copy a lot of files, I used a modern machine running NetBSD 9.3. I was also able to build a custom kernel on the same machine for 9.3. For 10RC1, I hit some issues trying to trim generic and gave up, maybe until next winter. Without an install image to boot from, I kept 5.1 on the boot partition, the existing hard drive, and had to use multi-boot from the existing boot manager along with a USB thumb drive. Here are steps for 10RC1, substitute is needed for 9.3. On a modern device, prepare a USB thumb drive, mine was 2GB, for the 10RC1 root partition and use a RAND using disk label dash I at disk label dash lowercase i dash capital I slash dev fd0. Create a swap partition B, I used 8 megabytes and at least 4 and and at least I'm just confused by the sentence. It's not like I'm struggling. and at least a 4.2 BSD A partition. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know enough NetBSD to understand this. It feels like it, it's meant to be a size. <laughs> yeah, I'm so confused. Maybe then do new FS. Uh, yeah, um, download the sets. Add MD slash proc and slash current directories. Create an F stab with at least. Um, do you say F stab or FS tab? FS Benedict? tab. The files, the files want to stab you. <laughs> er, stab, stab. <laughs> yeah, see, like the files are going to come stab you. The F stab. Um, if you it, could, could, uh, please, please write in to feedback at bsdnow.tv and tell us how to pronounce words. Yeah. Uh, on the Teach laptop, us. copy the generic kernel to the laptop's 5.1 boot partition as NetBSD 10. Edit the boot.conf with the added menu. Put in USB thumb drive and reboot. Login as root. Sysinstall. Once happy with how things are configured, reboot again to confirm. At this point, I was able to do package add and install some minimal tools, including tmux, duly missed, on 5.1. The D message is below. I tried using a PCIM CIA CF adapter with a comfy 8GB CF card instead of a USB thumb drive. Unfortunately, I started hitting PCIM, PCM CIA issues at WDC2. As zero zero lost interrupt, and I switched using USB thumb drive. The laptop feels slower on both uh, 10RC1 and 9.3. Without more trimming of the kernel, there's a lot more use of the swap drive. This was a fun project, and along the way, I learned some things about NetBSD's init process and boot manager. I'll stick to 5.1 and the 90s laptop for now. It was a great release back then, and I will enjoy NetBSD 10 on my ARH64 devices. Great release for nowadays. Yeah, why not? That's cool. I don't think you should use PCMCIA if you can help it. I think these things are just going to die really it, quickly. Yeah, it is old, but hey, if it works, then... I mean, but but if you kill them when you could use a USB stick, which you could get a million of, then yeah, that, how that will too, I have them to yeah. put in my old computers? I'm not sure if the machine will survive another year, but we'll watch this space. It's just great. That's cool. People just use the old hardware. Uh, yeah, I, d I don't really know how OpenBSD, uh, sorry, how NetBSD is on small systems like this because for like really old hardware, like if you're talking about like a 68K machine, the limitations are really distinct in what it can do. But for a 386 machine, there's such a range of stuff. And a 586, you know, it, this didn't, it's not like the blog post we had last year where somebody had to edit out instructions because they were invalid on the, the 586 they were running. Because FreeBSD gone to being a six eight six as a minimum, um, so yeah, it's, it's fun. Thanks, thanks, Joel. Keep writing. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, another one uh, who keeps working on interesting stuff is Brian Robert Callahan, Doctor Brian Robert Callahan, I should say. Uh, FreeBSD has a new C compiler. He writes in his uh, blog post, Oracle Developer Studio twelve point six. So. Uh, Mr. Callahan is busy, as always, porting new compilers, it seems, or uh, development environments in this case, along with it. And in this one is the Oracle Developer Studio. Did you say so, Mr.? He's Dr. Do yeah, Dr. Mr., Mr. Doctor. 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 Which It's only like one weird American university where they say Mr. Yeah. So if you get a PhD, Sorry. The, the doctor overrules the Mr.? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Definitely. Oh, uh, your title okay. becomes doctor because you're yeah. now a doctor. Right. That is the advancement. That's Sorry. why you have this five-year 
That's why, like, the, the first line of this page is Dr. Brian Do- Robert Do- Callahan. Yeah, okay, so the doctor it is. That's why. It's... And here we go. <laughs> <laughs> now that we cleared this up, as announced, uh, I have once again accomplished something no one was asking for and probably no one wants. Okay. This time it's getting Oracle Developer Studio 12.6 C compiler to produce native binaries for FreeBSD. For those uninitiated, uh, or, or initialized. Uh, Oracle Developer Studio is the current name for the Sun compilers. Ah, okay. There is some history there, it, it turns out. A long time ago, a FreeBSD port of the Intel C++ compiler was created. I remember that. However, the version of the compiler you get from that package is 8.1, released in September 2004. That is 20, almost 20 years old. And it's only supported for FreeBSD i 86 Let's continue this rich history of proprietary compilers on FreeBSD. Word of warning, if you try this for yourself and you break it, you get to keep both pieces. The setup. Uh, he started by installing FreeBSD 14.0 release, specifically the AMD64 one. Once logged into the newly installed system, he downloaded the Oracle Linux Red Hat Linux Oracle... Blah, blah, blah. That's a long thing. Oracle Linux Red Hat Linux Oracle Developer Studio 12.6 Tarball. Though it says it's x86, they are 64-bit binaries. Untart them and move the resulting developer studio 12.6 directory to opt oracle so that the C compiler is founded slash opt slash oracle slash developer studio 12.6 slash bin slash cc. Linux Ulator. FreeBSD includes Linux binary compatibility through its Linux Ulator. Following the FreeBSD handbook, the commands uh, he needed to get things going were sysocd linux underscore enable yes. Uh, service Linux start and package installed Linux base C7 and Linux C7 elf utils dash libl. The CentOS 7 base seems to be a little old. It appears the libraries date from 2009. It looks like you can get a modern Debian Ubuntu userland by following the other set of directions in the handbook. But as he didn't experience any issues, he didn't try to do anything more than this simple setup. Huh, why not? The only issue of note is that Oracle Developer Studio binaries need a libelf library and that isn't included in the Linux uh, base C7 package, hence the need for the second Linux C7 elf utils libelf package. Okay. So the easy way at this point, you could say that you install Linux headers in the GNU, GNU linker targeting Linux, then you can build all the Linux binaries you want and FreeBSD will be able to run those binaries through the Linux simulator. And yes, that will work. That's the easy way. So if that's what you want, you're done at this step. However, we never do things the easy way here. Getting started on the hard way. No, instead I want Oracle Developer Studio to produce native FreeBSD binaries. This is going to take more work. The first thing we will need to do is understand what Oracle Developer Studio attempts to do in compiling code. So let's start by writing the POSIX true utility in C. That is just returning zero, but it's uh, returning the truth uh, or the true state and saving it as true.c. You can use the dash hash flag to get verbose output running uh, the bin cc from the Oracle Developer Studio uh, on the true.c gives the output depicted here. I'm not reading that because it's just compiler output. Uh, so it says right now we're going to ignore the linker step, though it does look like we successfully get the linker step. Uh, there are a few things that stand out to me in this output. First, in the standard equals GNU11 flag, indicating that we are a C11 compiler by default. That's nice and modern enough for him. Second, it's uh, all the Linux defines, and we're on FreeBSD. We want the FreeBSD preprocessor defined. So let's see what happens if we run with D underscore underscore FreeBSD underscore underscore equals 14 uh, additional parameter. So that produces a different output. Looks like preprocessor defines we specify on the command line go at the end of the compiler invocation. This is actually excellent as it means we can also undefine all the Linux preprocessor defines. The first thing of note is that Oracle Developer Studio hard codes the Linux or the dynamic linker uh, to the Linux x86 64.so2. Of course, this is the Linux dynamic linker. If we want the FreeBSD dynamic linker, we need to add dash WL dash dynamic linker and the libexec LDFS older one. Like the preprocessor defines, what we define comes after the hard-coded flag, so we will always overwrite the Linux dynamic linker with the FreeBSD dynamic linker. And additionally, the linker does not know where libraries are on the system, so we can help it out with the dash capital L user lib port uh, user lib32 when linking 32-bit code. This is getting us much closer. 
Uh, then he talks a bit more about a linker conundrum. It appears that the Oracle developers do to hard codes the location of the linker to user bin LD. I could not find an option like uh, f use ld equals something else to change the linker used. On FreeBSD, user bin ld is LLVM LLD, which at the error message helpful keeps pointing out does not understand the dash capital Q, Y, and Y flags. At one point, uh, LLD did silently ignore capital Q and lowercase y, but this is subsequently removed. As far as he can tell, uppercase y never has been supported in LLD. This was a bit of a shame, as it means we either need to develop support for capital Y and LLD ourselves or switch to using the GNU linker. He chose to switch to the GNU linker, even though that's a less ideal choice. And you can do that by installing the bin utils package, rm user bin LD, be careful with that, uh, on production systems, and ln minus s the old linker to the new linker user bin LD. And don't worry, you haven't deleted LLD. Uh, user bin LLD is still around uh, if you'd like to switch back. Then he talks a bit more about building real programs the hard way and some patching of headers. But at the end of all this, with a couple more things in between, check out the full blog post if you're interested in the details. He concludes with, there are probably still some subtle bugs lying around, but this is really enough to have Oracle Developer Studio 12.6 produce native binaries for FreeBSD, both 64-bit and 32-bit hardware or uh, systems. Uh, he built two copies of GNU Bash 5.2.21, 64-bit and 32-bit. They're statically linked binaries, so they're a little large, but hopefully usable and portable for a while. He used dash x04 and dash x space fpic for the C flags, which was, uh, as he understood, the documentation is likely the most sensible optimization flags for most compiles. And if you run read elf dash x dot comment bash, you will see all the comments Oracle Developer Studio leaves behind. That was fun and probably useless. And no, I didn't really try the C compiler. Things broke immediately, and getting the C compiler working was enough for me. Maybe NetBSD will be next. Okay, so we'll be looking out for more uh, adventures in uh, compiler porting by Dr. Brian Robert Callahan. Thanks for writing this. There we go. Next, um, we just have a Google Photos directory of pictures from, I don't know, what's the name? A Control-Alt Museum uh, at www.controlalt.museum, which appears to be a museum of computers I don't know if it's a museum of computing uh, in Italy, um, and it looks really nice. They also have sports cars, which is very confusing. Is that a PDP-11? No, it's not. It looks really cool. Um, mm -hmm. It's nice to see these pictures. I don't have any more context. That's all I've got. Yeah, um, browse them. The pages uh, in Italian. It looks amazing, and being at the museum is probably the best thing, but this is the next best thing without having to travel. Okay, uh, then we have Beastie Bits for you. Uh, quick and uh, definitely interesting. Uh, the Taylor's Hacker Station. Remember hackerstations.com? A couple of people posted their uh, setups there. And this one is from Taylor Troesh, T R O E S H, and his whimsical setup in LA, California. And there's a bit of introductory parts here. He's a developer, designer, database administrator, chaos muppet, etc. And with an M1 MacBook Pro, LG display, Apple Track pad, various linear keyboards, AirPods, Max, Yamaha, HS5, Shure, SM7B, Monome, Vivo kneeling chair, and other junk. <laughs> and so check out the full article. It has a nice couple of descriptions and pictures for each of them. So uh, including dogs. And that certainly looks interesting as a workstation. I don't know when this paper was published. Oh, 2022. Okay. Um, just, just a snippet, I'm only going to read you the summary. Um, here's the introduction from an empirical study of the reliability of Unix utilities um, by Miller, Friedrichsen, and So. Um, and the summary of this paper is operating system facilities such as kernel and utility programs are typically assumed to be reliable. <laughs> in our recent experiments we've been able to crash 25 to 33 percent of the utility programs on any version of unix that was tested this report describes these tests and, an, and tests and an analysis of the program bugs that caused crashes and i haven't read further and you're not getting to either yeah check out the full thing uh if you're interested in this kind of historical of sorts artifact and 
maybe report back how you like it. Then we have BSD on Windows, things I wish I knew existed, this article reads. And oh, hello, bad gateway from Cloudflare. Ah, we're back. Uh, <laughs> that was kind of an <laughs> intermediate. Uh, My favorite web page. Well, this is it all the time. Ah, this is from the Wayback Machine. That's why. Uh, virtually fun is the site, virtuallyfun.com. And it's uh, here for me. <laughs> why is the style sheet not loading? Um, yeah, BSD on Windows. It's just black. I wish I knew existed. Yeah, <laughs> that's easy enough. So it turns out uh, there was a BSD on Windows, and there are a couple pictures there from the box, how it looks inside uh, the machine when it's installed. And I didn't knew this was a thing back then, even though back then I was just using Windows and didn't have uh, any clue about the uh, <laughs> other operating systems out there, aka Unix. But it was called BOW 1.5 BSD on Windows. And yeah, just check out the, the screenshots and the full article and you will see that there was some light at the uh, tunnel even back then in 1995. I'm sorry, but in the screenshot, it says OS slash U is an alternative name for B-O-W. U means one unbelievable, two USOs in, in Japanese. Uh -oh. The BSD icons supplied in the software are reproduced with permission better. of Marshall Kirk McCusick. This is great. You should read this post. It looks. Yeah. Is that NetHack? That... I want to play NetHack. It looks familiar, at least. BSD now is sponsored by Tarsnap. Everyone needs backups, and Tarsnap ensures that your backups are not only safe, but also secure. Your data is encrypted on your device before being sent to the cloud. You can be sure that only you have the ability to read your data. Tarsnap takes your data and works out what is duplicated. It then assembles the data into compressed blocks and creates them with your local private key. This key never leaves your system. The data is then uploaded into the cloud. Even if someone is able to obtain your data in the cloud, they will not be able to decrypt it and access your files. Tarsnap is easy to use. If you can use Tar, then you can use Tarsnap. Tarsnap is prepaid, so you never have to worry about an unexpected bill. Tarsnap is fully open source, allowing you to inspect the code and make sure it does what we say it does. Tarsnap has bug bounties so that if you find errors in the code, you can get paid for helping make the software better. With clients on all major platforms, there's no excuse not to have good backups. Go to tarsnap.com to learn more. Uh, uh, that's pretty much all. We have no... Uh, we should just cancel the next recording and play NetHack. Questions for this uh, episode, <laughs> even though there have been a couple of uh, feedbacks received. We will probably cover this next uh, week or in the next recording. Um, but definitely keep sending us feedback questions, anything that you think is worthwhile to enhance this uh, episode with content. Uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv is your favorite email address for that. And you can join our ever-growing Telegram channel on t.me slash bsdnow. 